Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, reporter and assistant editor Michelle Rundels and I have a story about the eviction moratorium and how struggling tenants should plan to rely on the federal CDC eviction moratorium if they still require assistance. Plus a heartbreaking story of one woman struggling with the system. After that, we hear from our editors, John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson, on the early mail vote numbers as ballots have started rolling in, as well as what to expect from John's famous early voting blog. Near the end of the show, we hear from a member of Team Indie who readers and listeners don't get to hear from very often, but is nonetheless a vital member of the team. We'll pull back the curtain a little bit and give some behind the scenes of our operations here at the Indie. And normally, this would be where I say that first, Megan Messerly and I sat down to talk about the latest numbers regarding the coronavirus. But we've moved that segment to the end of our show. So if you want those COVID-19 updates, Stick around until the very end, or you can find the timestamp in the description to give a listen to that. With the Nevada eviction moratorium coming to an end, but a federal eviction moratorium remaining until the end of the year, hundreds of thousands of Nevada residents could be booted from their homes in a couple of months. Host and multimedia editor Joey Lovato and reporter Michelle Rindels have more on the plight of Nevadans struggling to pay bills in an economy that's been slow to recover. At the beginning of the pandemic in March, Governor Steve Sisolak implemented a statewide eviction moratorium to protect Nevadans from losing their homes or places of business during the middle of a health crisis. The moratorium didn't allow them to live rent-free, but did allow tenants time to catch up if they'd struggled to pay rent because they lost their job or had trouble getting unemployment benefits. That statewide ban was lifted this week, but most Nevada tenants are still eligible for protections under a moratorium implemented by the Federal Center for Disease Control and Prevention that lasts until the end of the year. An eviction mediation program and rental assistance payment program are also available to people who are behind on their rent. But the aid hasn't resolved all of the underlying issues in a state where recovery has been slow, especially for people in low-wage jobs depending on tourism. Hundreds of thousands of people in Nevada are expected to struggle paying their rent by the end of the year when the CDC moratorium lifts and rental assistance funds run out. Reporter Michelle Rendells spoke with one Nevadan living on the brink. Laura Wynn, a mother of four children who lives in Las Vegas, is out of work from her job as a housekeeper at the Wynn Casino. This year has brought tragedy after tragedy, with members of her family contracting COVID and both her husband and father dying this summer. She's been surviving on unemployment benefits and charity meal donations from the Culinary Union each week, but she was evicted once already this year and worries it could happen again. Well, to get eviction, it is um, very sadness because it's, uh, I feel very, I had a stress, um, trauma stress disorder. Um, that's what I have when I had the COVID. I feel very um, sad. Um, I can't cry because I have to be strong for them. I told them everything is gonna be okay. Um, do not worry, mommy is here. Everything will be back to normal. Um, just give me some time. Laura filed a police report about her eviction, which happened in June, when a statewide moratorium on evictions was in place. 
She said her landlord brought people to tour her home while her son was there quarantining. Eventually, the landlord changed all the locks. She's not aware of the case being resolved, and she was initially forced to move in with a friend until she could find her own place. And especially for my kids, going to a friend's house and stay there is not the same as your house that you can be able to get the, to, to the refrigerator, uh, be free to watch TV, you know, be free to walk in, you know, to the jar or open your door and walk your dog, uh, the dog, you know, it's, it's hard for me. One of the biggest differences now that Nevada statewide eviction moratorium has lifted and just the CDC moratorium is in place is that tenants need to be proactive to avoid being kicked out if they can't pay rent. Most important is signing a written declaration invoking the CDC eviction moratorium and presenting it to your landlord. I spoke with Jim Birchold, an attorney at the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada, who explains who qualifies for the protections. There are really five things that you have to qualify for. So one, you have to be unable to pay your rent. Two, you have to have made a good faith effort to at least make partial payments. Three, you have to have applied for and sought out rental assistance. You have to make less than $99,000 a year or have received a stimulus payment for under the CARES Act. And lastly, you have to attest that if you were to be evicted, you could potentially be homeless or have to move into some kind of group living situation. People who are having trouble paying rent should act now, he says. There is no deadline for providing the CDC declaration, and there's no reason to wait to provide the CDC declaration. What we're really encouraging tenants to do is get a copy, review it carefully, because it, it doesn't apply to everybody. You have to meet certain qualifications for it to apply to you. But if it applies to you, sign it, give it to your landlord, make sure that you have some proof that you gave it to your landlord, ideally. So some certified mail, or you can even email it and have the email, something to show that it was delivered. But there's no reason to wait. If you qualify under the CDC declaration, give it to your landlord now. He's trying to get the word out to ensure tenants don't sit back and then get surprised when their landlord tries to evict them. But he also warns that there are some gray areas in how the CDC moratorium is interpreted, so landlords may try to evict tenants anyway. He hopes tenants stand their ground and fight those attempts. We are seeing a lot of landlords try to get around the CDC order by issuing the tenant other types of evictions, specifically no-cause evictions. So the, so the landlord isn't saying, even though the tenant's behind on rent, even though rent is really the issue in the case, what the landlord's saying is, but wait, I'm not evicting you for non-payment of rent. I'm giving you a no-cause eviction. Well, so logically, it would seem that if the CDC order only allows these five types of evictions, that that no-cause eviction it is prohibited under the CDC order. But the landlords are trying mightily to test that. And so that, yes, they are filing evictions right now. They are filing no-cause evictions. They are filing evictions when a lease term has ended. And they are trying every tack they can take 
to try to get around the protections of that order and narrow it as much as possible. So again, we come back to that is why tenants have got to protect themselves. They've got to give that declaration and they've got to file in response to any eviction notice. They've got to file with the court and they need to attach a copy of that declaration and they need to make the argument in court, this applies to me. Laura has since found a studio apartment where her rent is $700 a month. She sleeps in the kitchen and her two teenagers share the rest of the space. But her latest obstacle is getting unemployment benefits. She exhausted her regular benefits, which were paying $276 a week, and was told it could be several weeks before money from an extended benefits program starts flowing. She's also struggling with vision problems after contracting COVID herself, and her diabetic 14-year-old daughter also has lingering side effects from the virus. All this while she worries how to keep a roof over her family's head on her meager income. Sometimes, like last night, I don't sleep because I've been thinking. Um, yesterday, I believe it was the last day uh, for the governor or something. I, I saw on the TV that it was the last day for the people can do eviction for you. So I tried to work with my landlord, and um, she said, just um, wait, just wait and see what happens. She's sharing her story because she hopes policymakers will understand the plight of Nevadans facing eviction. More than 400,000 people are expected to have trouble paying their rent by the end of the year. She hopes Congress will pass another stimulus package to help. Because it's not only um, Laura, it's a lot of thousand people behind me. They've been laid off from our job. We are suffering a lot. And... They don't know because we don't speak, we don't talk, we don't let them hear our voice. And we need to let them hear our voices, that we are here and we need help from them. That's Joey Lovato and Michelle Rindell's reporting. If you want to hear more from them, make sure to keep listening to this very podcast, or you can check out our website, thenevadaindependent.com, for more stories like this. If you want to see about aid for yourself or someone you know, you can find resources by searching for COVID eviction declaration on the CDC website, cdc.gov. All right, and so we are back. I am multimedia editor Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined by John Ralston and Elizabeth Thompson, our editors, and they're both down in Las Vegas. You know, we've got some early vote numbers coming in, and John, you have the the famous or infamous early vote blog that you started a couple of days ago. Can you kind of just explain what that is for listeners who don't know what that is? Sure. I started doing this several cycles back. I love analyzing the early votes. People may not know, uh, Joey, that 67 
70% of Nevada voters generally vote before election day. So there aren't that many votes left on election day. So I can do a lot of projections with the data and I've been able to call uh, races pretty well just using the early vote data. We're on the eve of early voting starting here in Nevada. It's two weeks, but this is a very different year. I've already had, by the time this podcast is, is posted, Joey, probably more than 100,000 votes already cast in, in Nevada. There are about 1.7 million reg, active registered voters. But what's clear is that uh, the Democrats have taken to this mostly male ballot election. Remember that special session mandated that every active voter get a ballot. The Democrats are absolutely crushing the Republicans statewide by 30 percentage points or, 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 or so, which I don't think anybody really expected, including maybe uh, the Democrats. But the return rates uh, are, are, are not huge, except in Washoe County, where they're already in double digits in terms of ballots that have been returned. Uh, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, Joey, but how much this matters with about 5-7% of the vote in, I, I don't know. It makes early voting that starts Saturday that much more interesting because usually the Democrats dominate the Republicans in early voting as well in, in presidential cycles. But Republicans have been told not to vote by mail, essentially, by the president and some of his operatives. So they're clearly not turning out in great numbers, even in very red rural Nevada, where the Democrats are holding their own. So are they going to make up for it in early voting? They better, uh, because if it's just a usual pattern in early voting, it's going to be a landslide. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the Republicans are going to try to make a big show of it. But if they don't, uh, we are going to know a lot because so many ballots are going to be in by the end of early voting. So, John, I want to ask you, do you think, I mean, there's so many, this is such an unusual year and there's different scenarios we could be dealing with. By the way, listeners, we're going to be doing an election night show. We haven't formally announced that yet, so you're hearing it first here. So when we're sitting there, John, on Tuesday night, and we've got all these mail vote numbers, we'll have presumably, will we have all the early voters, 100% of them? by the time we're talking on Tuesday night? Yes. So I assume then, Mr. Number Cruncher, that you, know, you would look at past year's total turnout, who's voted, how many votes presumably could be left on election day, make some kind of extrapolation about how many of those might be Republicans, and then with some degree of confidence, you'll be able to say some things pretty early in the night. Do, do you think, is that, is that is that a good characterization, what I just said, or, or am I looking at it wrong? Well, let, let me give you an answer that when I was on TV, I would not have let a politician get away with. It depends. It, it, it depends how many ballots have actually been uh, returned through early voting and mail balloting. It depends what kind of lead either party has likely to be the Democrats in this state. What I was able to do in 2016, for instance, was project that Trump uh, could not win Nevada at, by the end of early voting because the Democrats had banked so many votes. And, and you can always predict that approximately 90% of each base is going to vote for, the, for their presidential candidate, that there just weren't enough votes left for Trump to win the state. The Republicans had as good an election day as they could, and he still lost. So 
I think we'll be able to say some things, but how definitively, again, it's a different year because people have started sending in mail ballots more than three weeks before uh, the election. We've never had that. And so we, we have to watch through early voting. If the pattern were to be a normal pattern, then the Republicans would just have to give up because it would be over. Uh, I don't expect that because the Republicans clearly are waiting to vote in person. But if not enough of them vote during early voting and they're waiting for election day, there are going to be massive, massive lines. And a lot of people are going to walk away from that, I would guess. They're just not going to stick around to vote. So as you know, Elizabeth, because you've watched me do this for many years, uh, even maybe before Joey was born, I can project a lot and I've done it fairly accurately. I've seen things coming pretty early. But this is a different kind of year. I I am right now, you know, flummoxed uh, in terms of there not being enough data and not knowing what the pattern's going to be. What about the fact that, so I keep thinking about, you know, the way the election law exists now that people can mail their ballots on election day and those ballots might take three or four days to be received and maybe a few more days after that before they're counted and I guess we can have some idea of how many that might be or maybe more accurately how many it couldn't be um, because we'll know something about how many votes we have but I mean that's a that's another unknown in this situation right? Uh, It is although Nevada is different than some states and and states that people are really keeping an even closer eye on than Nevada even though I hate to admit it in the the so-called blue wall of the Midwest where that's what where Democrats usually win but Hillary Clinton lost by a combined total of fewer than 100,000 votes that cost her the election. States like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin don't do anything with their mail ballots until election day by law. The law here says they can start counting them, meaning feeding them into the machine 14 days before the election. So they will be ready to have all those numbers. So when those first numbers pop up on election night, hopefully closer to seven o'clock than 10 o'clock, then we, we we should know a lot about where the race is going. One other wild card this year, though, I think we should watch out for, and I hate to say it and jinx the state, is the potential for lawsuits by the Republican in many states, including Nevada, because they object to how the absentee mail ballots are being counted, how they're being processed. There will be mail ballots processed after Election Day. There's no doubt about that, because as you said, Elizabeth, you can drop those off or mail them on, on Election Day. My guess is there are not going to be too many of those around, although I have to say, and as you talk about hearing it first on this podcast, you know how opposed to early voting I am on principle saying people should wait until the last minute so they have all the information. I, I, I was thinking about changing that this year, but now I think that the reasonable compromise is to vote by mail, but drop off my mail ballot on election day. <laughs> I, I wish that the listeners could have seen Elizabeth's face when John said that. She just looked so stunned. And honestly, me too. <laughs> but but you still, you're still not going to early vote, huh, John? 
I will not vote early. Absolutely not. I've just decided <laughs> I'm, just not, I'm not going to do it. I guess um, old uh, dogs can learn not entirely new tricks, but. Well, I'm, I'm certainly an old dog. I'm certainly an old dog, but I just, it, it, it doesn't change the principle that, I, that I've adhered to for so, for so long that I really think, I understand why people are doing it this year more than ever, and, and I'm sympathetic, and so I, I won't be my usual scathing self to people who are voting early. I get why this is a different kind of year. Uh, I, I'm just not sure because I'm an old dog that it makes much sense for me to stand in line with a whole bunch of people on election day. It makes more sense to drop it off to be safe from, from a health point of view. So it seems like a reasonable compromise to me. Would, uh, would, you, would, would you recommend to voters that they early vote, John? I don't think I would recommend it to, to anybody, Joey, but I'm, what I'm saying is I understand why people are worried because of all of the what the president has done is kind of a pre-buttal to the election saying there's going to be fraud. So people want to get their vote in there and counted as soon as possible. I get, I get that. Uh, I still believe in, in, in the process, especially here in Nevada, and I believe we have some of the best election supervisors in the country, Joe Gloria in Clark County, Wayne Thorley, and with the Secretary of State's office who essentially oversees the election. And from what I know of Washoe County, having dealt with them already, they do, they do a really good job too. So uh, I, I, I don't want to, this, again, the only tone I'm changing this time is I'm not going to be hypercritical of people who want to <laughs> vote early. Uh, you know, it'd be different, I think, maybe in this state if there were a full slate of constitutional officers and the Senate race uh, here, then I would really urge people to wait uh, longer still. But there's, there's really a huge drop off this year from the presidential race down to the congressional races and the legislative races. So uh, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I can't make the case as fervently. And you add in uh, the issue of the pandemic. I just, I get why people would want to vote early. And, and Joey, that lets you off the hook because I know that you want to vote early. Oh, I already, I already sent my ballot in. Okay, see, <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, what does an indie pink slip look like? <laughs> I'll have to invent one. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, you, you mentioned uh, voter fraud, so I just want to bring that up real quick before we wrap up here. But can you kind of just talk a little bit about that, you know, the history of that in the state? You know, how big of a concern is that? It's been talked about a lot in the news, you know, just what, what are we looking at when we talk about voter fraud? And, you know, what does that even look like if there was to be voter fraud? Look, there have been very, very few instances of any type of attempted voter fraud in Nevada going back many, many cycles. We, we wrote a story on it, I believe, because we were curious and we kind of wanted to gather up the instances. I think it was a handful of situations and in a couple of them, someone did it intentionally because they were trying to test the system. So they said they weren't even really, you know, necessarily gung-ho about fraud. So it's not, it's a non-issue in my mind. And in addition to that, and I've looked into this and I reported on this years ago too, when I was um, following the, the, that year, you remember John with all the big marquee races, we had Reed against Sandoval running for governor. We had Angle versus Harry Reed and the U.S. Senate race. I mean, that was quite a year, but yeah, I looked into it even across the country and it's just incredibly rare. Nevada has a very buttoned up election system, including double signature verification and an added step of signature curing if there's any doubt at all. Great job with poll watchers. 
There's all kinds of checks and balances. We, we've worked hard here. It's what Nevada isn't great at everything, but we're actually pretty good at running clean, efficient elections. And even though John and I sometimes when we're tired on election night and we're wondering why we don't have the numbers from Esmeralda County yet, right? Like that's the least of the worries. Um, so by and large, it's just a non-issue. I don't think people need to worry about it. I'm very surprised by how much of the national conversation and the conversation in Nevada is centering on voter fraud because I, I don't know, I just, I don't get it. So real quickly, Joey, because Elizabeth covered almost everything. Th- there's never been any coordinated voter fraud in, in Nevada. Don't, don't forget that you would have to be willing to commit a crime to do this, you, just, to, just to commit voter fraud. And as Elizabeth said, there's plenty of safeguards. You're probably going to get caught. And, and to think that there's some kind of conspiracy. And what's ironic in this state is that accusing the Democrats of this, if all other things being equal, the Democrats are going to win in this state because they have an organization and they have the voter registration advantage. So uh, if there's any suspicion, it should be on the other side. Having said that, I think we need to make clear that in a mail election, whether it's going to be half the vote or a little less or a little more this time, mail. And when you're allowing what is known as ballot collection or ballot harvesting, meaning people can designate someone outside of their family to return their ballots, obviously there is a greater potential for fraud than, than, than a, an election where less than 10% of, of voters vote by mail. So there's more potential. But my guess is, Joey, that we're not going to see very, very much evidence at all. There's going to be irregularities and people are going to complain about ballots found in garbage cans or too many. But that doesn't mean those ballots were voted. That's the issue people need to remember. You may have ballots all over the place strewn about. And I don't think that's going to happen, by the way. It happened in the primary because they sent to voters who were designated inactive. They're not doing that. So this is what Trump has tried to do, though. He has tried to create, and, and his operatives here, uh, especially Adam Laxalt, the former attorney general, who should know better, is create this aura of voter fraud uh, when there is no evidence of it. And to me, by the way, both as a journalist and as a citizen, it is incredibly, incredibly pernicious, and, and it's terrible to, to tell people that they shouldn't trust their elections. That's what they're doing and i hope the people who do that do that pay a very heavy price for it all right well um on that note i guess we'll uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up here but john and elizabeth thank you so much for joining me kind of talking a little bit about early voting we'll probably reconvene in a couple of weeks right before the election to talk about what numbers are looking like and john maybe you can start calling some races then or do you want to call races now are you confident in any <laughs> uh, i i am uh, confident that marilyn kirkpatrick will be re-elected to the clark county commission you can you can say where you heard it first all right guys well thank you so much for joining me thanks joey thank you All right, and so we are on the third segment of the podcast, the fun segment, and uh, we have someone that we don't normally get to hear from, CJ Keeney. He's our CTO, our Chief Technical Officer. How's it going, CJ? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. And so, like I said, we don't get to hear from you very much. I don't know if the listeners have ever heard you. Um, (laughs) Can you explain to me what you do? You're a very important person at the Nevada Independent. Sure. I do a lot, but it's all behind the scenes. Basically, our website, the day-to-day articles and stories, I keep that all running. That anytime a reporter has a special project or a a new thing they want to embed in a story. I make sure all the all the stories look right. And then every time we have an election, I actually work with the Secretary of State to get a live data feed from them. 
and we display the, the election results in a nice way on our website, usually alongside a election live stream. And I also integrate uh, third-party services like data tracking and payment processors and email campaigns and stuff like that. Really anything that has to do with technology, I kind of have a part in. I always, I always make the joke that um, if it's not written on the website, it was probably me. And that might be true in terms of the podcast and the video, but you're really the guy who, if it's not written, it's definitely you. And even if it is written, it's you. you. You make sure that literally all of our content can reach our audience. And you also built the website, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I built the website. It's, it's WordPress powered behind the scenes, but uh, the theme, everything you actually see other than when the reporters are inputting data, all of that is built from scratch. So yeah. And so if it ever goes down, uh, now listeners know who to, who to blame. Yes, you can reach me. <laughs> find my contact information on the website. <laughs> and, and, and you're like the only, or there's you and one other person on staff are the only two people who don't have a, a background in, in journalism. What, what is your background in? I have a degree in math, but while I was in college, I got a job part-time working for my friend, actually, who was younger than me. But he paid me uh, $15 an hour to do programming. And ever since then, I've just done programming jobs. So. Which I, I, I love that, that you kind of don't have a background in journalism because I do think that you bring an interesting perspective. You are really like participatory on Slack and stuff. And you have given us really good story ideas before. But I think that it's nice to have maybe someone who's not always necessarily thinking like a, a, a journalist to, uh, to bring perspective to what we're working on. Yeah, well, thank you. I definitely like bringing what I can to the table. I know I, I, a lot of times I feel like I don't quite fit in. You know, people will make almost like inside political jokes that just, I just kind of ignore them. They <laughs> go over my head or I, I, I don't know. I, I, feel a little, I feel a little out of my some of the inside jokes. But yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely like participating. I feel like I, I'll give the listeners some insight. I've, I genuinely like didn't even know the difference between a Democrat and a Republican when I started college. <laughs> and then, you know, I learned more about politics when I was in college and then I never expected to end up in a, a political journalism career, but here I am. And I actually, I love it. And I think it's super fun, but yeah, I think it's an, it's an interesting time to be uh, to work in this, but CJ, thank you so much for kind of just giving us a little bit of an insight into some of the back end of the indie th things that people don't normally get to, get to see. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. All right, Megan. So before we get into anything else, as always, let's start with the numbers. So noting that we're recording today on um, October 16th, it's Friday at 930 in the morning. What can you tell us about the data? Right. So we're sitting at about 88,000 cases statewide since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, we've seen cases go up a little bit over the last couple of weeks. If, you know, folks remember, we were seeing this spike over the summer, you know, then we saw these week over week decreases in the number of new cases. And now again, for the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing these increases uh, in new cases. So we're about where we were at the end of August. If you, if you think of the graph as like a V, we're, you know, we're heading back up uh, about where we were on, on August 24th or so in terms of the average number of new cases being reported each day. Uh, Deaths-wise, we're sitting at about 1,700 deaths. So um, we've seen in the last couple of days uh, some small increases in the average number of deaths reported each day. It's really hard to tell based on where we're at, if that's just a fluctuation in the data or if we're starting to see a little bit of an e increasing trend there. 
as folks who've been listening to this week over week will recall, we, um, you know, again, saw sort of that spike correlated with cases over the summer. Uh, it was on obviously on a little bit of a delayed time frame. We've talked about the fact that deaths tend to lag uh, case trends by about five weeks or so. So it's possible that we're starting to see, um, you know, that little bit of increases in deaths correlated with the increase in cases that we've been seeing, but we really need you know, more data to tell exactly where that, um, where that trend is going. And then recoveries wise, we're a little bit less than 80,000 recoveries statewide, you know, um, obviously cases recover if it's been, every health district sort of calculates this in their own way, but generally it's somewhere between 10 to 14 days. If you, you know, uh, diagnosed, you know, your symptoms have generally improved, you're not hospitalized, obviously have not passed away from the illness, you're generally considered recovered. So that's, um, you know, the third ongoing metric that we're, we're tracking just to keep an eye on the number of active cases in the state. And then I should say the fourth metric that we are obviously keeping an eye on is hospitalizations. We talked about this plateau in hospitalizations that we had been seeing again for four or so weeks. Um, in the last week, we saw those numbers go up a little bit. They peaked above um, 500. We haven't seen a steady increase. It's, it's hard to tell. It doesn't look like it's you know, exactly going up day over day. We've seen a little bit more fluctuations. Um, all the same, you know, those numbers are a little bit higher than they were. Uh, so we're just keeping an eye on those numbers. I will say, though, that, that yesterday, the most recent numbers that were reported, they did dip back below uh, 500 again. So we just have to keep an eye and sort of see where the hospitalization trends go. But so far, the hospitalization, uh, or sorry, the hospital association has reported that uh, hospital capacity remains good across the state. With a lot of this stuff, it's all lagging indicators, right? So uh, we would not necessarily see the effects of the governor's latest push to reopen certain segments of the economy, right? We're still a couple weeks away from that showing up in the data. Yeah, so if, if you think about this, we generally start seeing the impacts of, um, of, of decisions, maybe two or three weeks is generally what state officials have said. Uh, so we really need to keep our eyes peeled to see how much of a difference that makes. If you look at when cases started going up, it was a little bit after Labor Day. Um, you know, shortly around that time, we had uh, bars started to open too around the middle of September. So we have all of these factors that are sort of, you know, layering on top of one another, which is what makes it a little bit difficult to tell, you know, what specifically is contributing to the, the increases. But, but that's right that in general, you know, when the state takes an action, they're generally keeping an eye you know, waiting for a couple of weeks to sort of see where the data goes. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because if you, you make a decision that's contributing to community spread, it takes some time for those folks to become infected and then to pe people to become infected from them. And it's sort of this snowball effect. So we expect it to take a little bit of time before we see that show up in the data. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Laura Nguyen, Jim Birchold, Michelle Rendells, John Ralston, Elizabeth Thompson, CJ Keeney, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. Do you have thoughts about the podcast? Let us know by emailing me at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp. 
Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. I hate restart? being recorded. Oh, yeah. Let me, let me restart. Let me restart. <laughs> oh, this is awful. Okay. It'll be fine. Just think we're chat. We're just chatting, the two of us. Okay.